Welcome to episode 181 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Teresa Carpenter. Teresa is currently serving in the Navy as a public affairs officer. She started her career in the Navy because she was looking for a career. All her friends were head headed off to school and she was struggling to make ends meet and knew that she couldn't go to school and she was looking for a way forward. The Navy gave her that opportunity and she began her career working with airplanes as a mechanic. She continued to serve and she was able to get accepted into a program so she could become an officer. It was there she dove into her love of writing and communication, and she was able to become a public affairs officer after being a surface warfare officer. Today, she serves as a public affairs officer and is currently in Germany. Last month, I was a guest on her podcast, Stories of Service, and I'll link to it in the show notes so that you can find it if you want to see the interview of her interviewing me. And I'm really excited to get this episode out, so let's get started after a brief word from our sponsor. Women of the Military Podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Teresa. I'm so excited to have you here. Well, I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with why did you decide to join the military? All right. So I am originally from Columbus, Ohio, and I moved out of my parents' house my senior year, the summer before going into my 12th grade. And I pretty much started working a series of different jobs from about 15 to all the way through that high school up until I joined the Navy. And I realized any job I was trying to get right out of high school with no education, no training, no specialized skills was only going to get me so far. And I was starting to rack up a lot of debt. I was watching as my other friends whose parents could pay for their school were, were going off and attending college and starting their life. And I felt very stuck and felt like my life really wasn't going anywhere. And I had a couple friends that I was talking to at the time about where I was. One was a guy that I was seeing. Another was a roommate of mine. The roommate was in the Marine Corps. And the guy that I was seeing was just somebody who I was going to for advice. And they mentioned about joining the military, especially I think my roommate. He must have mentioned it to me. And then I started talking to a couple other people about it. And it just seemed like a good way to pay my bills and to travel and to figure out what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Because the jobs that I was having, I wasn't happy with. I didn't see any upward mobility and I couldn't afford to pay to go to college. And I really wanted an education. So I joined the Navy to get those opportunities. So your debt didn't even come from going to school. It was just trying to survive off of 
a high school education and the jobs that you got and you were you couldn't make ends meet and so and you wanted to go to school but there was like no way that it could happen and so that was one of the reasons plus all the other things that you mentioned yeah like i wanted to be able to get some kind of an education i didn't even really know what i wanted to study though i saw education as status back then like going to college was something that everybody around me was doing And I felt like I was getting left out of that experience, the college experience, like going and living in a dorm, going to frat parties and sororities. I mean, I I really didn't see it like, oh, I'm going to like figure out what I want to do with my life. It was like, oh, shoot, my social circle has all moved on and, and I can't move on with them. And I can't afford to pay my expenses. I was living paycheck to paycheck and I just felt so lost. And so when the military came along, it was just this opportunity to get some training and some education and learn a trade. They said they would teach me how to fix airplanes. And I thought, wow, okay, I I don't know how to do that. That sounds kind of cool. I really didn't know myself very well or understand what my strengths were. So I wasn't really able to guide the recruiter into something that I think would have more capitalized on what it is I do best. Back then, I was very all over the place and just didn't really know how to tap into those skills that that I think I do have now. So I was very easily influenced uh, to do whatever it was that they said would be good for me. And really, they were trying to put a lot of women into male-dominated fields in in the Navy at the time. And so they pushed me to be an AE, aviation electrician's mate. And I didn't know if that was going to be good or bad or a good deal, a bad deal. I just did it because that's what the recruiter said you ought to do. That really resonated with me because I... I kind of look back at myself and I'm like, why didn't you ask more questions? Why didn't you think about this? Why didn't you think about that? And then I also don't think about like I was 17, 18 years old and like I didn't know myself very well and I didn't know how to advocate for myself or to like even think about what questions should I ask and what ideas or what do I want to do in the future? I just felt really lost. And so when I was going through the recruiting process before I found out about ROTC, they were like, you should do this. And I was like, okie dokie. I'll do that. And I think it was like fuels or something. And and one of the ladies was like, she found me like waiting outside the recruiter's office. And she's like, what job did they tell you to do? And I told her and she's like, no, 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 let's fix this. And she found another job that she thought would be better for me. But it was funny how I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that. That sounds great. And I didn't even ask like, what will I be doing? Is this something I want to do? And so I think that's why I think so many people end up in jobs that don't like fit their personality or really are like the right place because the recruiters are just trying to like fill the holes on their list. And sometimes we are so young and we don't even know to like advocate for ourselves or what we want to do. And so when someone tells you this, if you're lost, they're like, you should do this. And I'm like, oh, I am found now and I don't have to think about it. So did you end up enlisting into the Navy and doing and fixing airplanes? I did. Yeah. I enlisted as an AE and I went first off, I went P3s um, in Keflavik, Iceland. I was there for about a year. 
And then I had a bit of a nervous breakdown, <laughs> mental health crisis, and I ended up leaving there a little earlier than, than planned. And that was when they almost processed me out of the Navy. So I spent a year in Great Lakes, Illinois, fighting a med board to stay in the military. So that was my year long, little, well, almost a year. I think I got there in April and left in, in January. And then after that, um, I couldn't fly an aircraft anymore. That was a special qualification I had, which was air crewman. So they had to send me what we call like a ground, like a maintainer, ground pounder. And so I was I was no longer air crew, but I was able to go fix S3s, which was another aircraft. So I did that for about four years after that first duty station. And that was where I got selected for my officer program. So I'd been in seven and a half, eight years when I got up uh, for... It's what's called seaman to admiral. So yeah, I, I fixed airplanes of two two different aircraft, two squadrons, total of about maybe collectively about seven years. And did you apply for the officer program? And what was that process like? It was clear cut. I think they wanted a lot of different information. It was the first time I'd ever really put in any kind of like package together because I never had applied for college or any of that stuff. I think I you know filled out job applications up till then. I, I never, you know, recruiting application, but never, never anything that intensive. And just going through that process was really illuminating because I started to learn like what it was that they considered important. And I studied it. I studied the board and the requirements and what would make my, my uh, package competitive and put it in and found out that I got selected But I was worried because I had this issue from my mental health issue from before. And I wondered if that was going to haunt me. I mean, I even almost didn't put in the package and went to medical, had to get an evaluation just to see if I could put in the package. And and that incident followed me around for the majority of my enlisted career. Like anytime I wanted to do something or get a qual, I had to go back, revisit this issue, get evaluated again, be declared okay, and then do it again. But Every time I always passed whatever it was that they wanted me to get through to show them that I had recovered from this incident. And so, yeah, I got picked up for Seaman to Admiral and uh, got my commission in 2006. And did you already have your degree or was that included in the program? It was included in the program. So I ended up getting my degree at Worcester State College. It's a small university in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I ended up staying out there because I met my now ex-husband while I was going through some officer schools in Rhode Island. So I go to Rhode Island. I go through all these officer schools, like they call it um, Naval Science Institute. That's what it was called, NSI. And then I went through BOOST, which was, I think it stands for like Broaden Opportunities for Officer Selection and Training. And what those... Some of those college, those classes do is they prepare you to go to college. So that was a neat thing too, is that my SAT scores, especially in math, were not very high. I like barely got the like cut off to just get in. And even though my, my English was very high. So they put me through a special school that helped me with my calculus and physics. And so I, I ended up taking those courses up in Rhode Island and I was there for about almost a year going through that process. Then I go to college, then I get my degree, then I become an officer. And that's really cool that they have programs like that where you can go from enlisted to officer and then have that support of like them paying for your school. Did they give you a stipend or like were you full tuition? How did that work out? I was full tuition getting paid as an E5. And then I made E6 
right before I started college. So I was still taking ratings exams up until I got selected as an E6. And so I left the, I always say I left the fleet as a petty officer second class, but I commissioned as an, as an E6. And yeah, it's an amazing program and they still have it. It's a little bit different how, you know, the rules for it and who can get in and all those things. But I I found it to be a great opportunity. I got my undergrad in communications. So around the time I got my undergrad is when I started realizing what I was good at and what I love doing. And so I ended up changing my major. Well, not changing it, but really putting myself on that path. Because even when I applied for my officer school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, well, I like to help people. Maybe I'll be a nurse. And, you know, I've never been into the medical field or a person that wanted to do anything medical related. I I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought maybe as a kid, I'd be a social worker. I always liked journaling and writing, but I, I just really didn't have anything that I had worked on long enough to get really good at. And so I went to the muscular dystrophy camp like the summer before I started college. And that's where I met a friend, a friend who's still a friend today who was a a journalist in the Navy. And when I met her, it sort of reinvigorated like all these things that I had remembered about, like things that I was good at and things I enjoyed doing. And so after that, I was like, oh, shoot, I'm going to try to become a public affairs officer. So I knew at that point, even before I started college, that that's PAO is what I was going to try to eventually do. Yeah, I think it's really good to talk about how figuring out what you want to do and what you like is a process. And like, it's not a bad thing to not know. It's actually a normal thing to not know. I think sometimes we kind of like push people to make decisions about their future when they're really young. And like my degree is in civil engineering and I now run a podcast and I do love math and that's why I did engineering. But I also really love writing and speaking and the technical stuff for the behind the scenes editing. I find that really fascinating. But I didn't like engineering like as a career field because I thought it was kind of boring to sit and do AutoCAD drawings. But they were like, oh, you like math. You should be an engineer. And like that was as much as the conversation went instead of like thinking about other things. And for a long time, I felt really uh, inner turmoil of being a woman in a STEM career field and then leaving it to do writing. But this is what I love. And having my degree in engineering does help me with like how I'm methodical and that sort of thing. And that doesn't mean like I can't ever go back to engineering, but I think there's no like one path forward. And I feel like sometimes we put people in boxes and not realize that there's lots of opportunities. Yeah. And I think that it's it's tough though. I mean, when you don't know how to articulate even to yourself what it is you want to do and how it is you want to spend your time, it's really hard for others to know how to put you into a category if you're not already able to articulate that. And that's why like, it's so important as a leader to identify in your people who likes doing certain things. Like you got to pick up on what, what are people volunteering for? What are the things that they're telling you about that they're working on? You know, what are the things they're not telling you about that they're don't want to work on, you know? And, and, and I, and, and you have to pay attention to those cues. And I think sometimes we don't pay attention to what people are driven to do and what, what, what drives them. And, you know, I wish like growing up, I had had more influences to push me and to nurture some of the things that I really enjoy doing now, because I think I'd be further along in some of these passions than I am now. Like I'm very grateful for what I have and for where I am. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of young people who can relate to that because sometimes you're just not 
nurtured along or you're not in a place where you're constantly getting feedback on your performance in a particular area. So you don't really build that that skill up to a certain level um, because you don't do it over and over and over again. And so that was sort of what my problem was. I mean, even to this day, I enjoy writing, but I would definitely not say that I'm a, a really great writer, a super strong writer. I think I'm a good writer, but I think I could be a lot better uh, with more feedback, more training, more time and more practice. Yeah, I agree with that. Like I took all the math and science courses and I didn't take any writing courses. And I'm like, I bet I really would have loved to take a writing course in college. So did you not already have your career filled when you said that you were planning to be a PAO? So it sounded like you were going to school, but you didn't know what your career field was going to be. Right. Because what happens is you can't, once you get selected as an officer in the way that I was selected, you can't just go public affairs. You have to go unrestricted line and you can choose certain core competencies, like I could have chose, well, back then we didn't have subsurface, but I could have chose aviation, surface, I forget what all the other ones were, but there's the very broad general categories, but things like, I can't just go be a lawyer or, or something like that. It's just, it's too specialized in public affairs, or I can't just go be a human resources or whatever. So I had to uh, go surface warfare. I, I did not want to go aviation. There would have been a lot more qualifications and tests that I would have had to go for. I had no desire to be a pilot. I didn't want to be a co-pilot. So those were my choices. A go slow was pretty much like, okay, you want to be a PAO, you can do what's called a lateral transfer, but you've got to go surface warfare first. And I'm so glad I did because I really had a great surface warfare experience. I loved my commanding officer, got to go to a destroyer. It was really good experience. So, so that's what I did. I went to uh, graduate from college, get my commission at the same time, because that's how it works. You, you get your bachelor's that same day, and then you get your commission. I mean, there's like a ceremony at the school where you, you are commissioned in the United States Navy as an officer. And then at the same time, you're also graduating. And so I did that. And I went to a ship, the USS Russell, and I worked on public affairs on the side. And so I, I was their, what we call the cloud duty public affairs officer. And it was, you know, day one, I walk in and tell my commanding officer that I'm intending to lat transfer. Like I'm, I'm going slow. I'm going to be the best slow you've ever seen. And I'm going to do my best. But my intention is to get selected for public affairs. Yeah, that's interesting because in the Air Force, you can go straight into public affairs. And I know in the Army, it's the same that you have to be like part of, I was going to say part of the fleet, which is a Navy terminology, but you have to be part of the fleet. And then you get to like specialize down, which I think gives you an interesting perspective, having been part of the bigger military picture and mission. And then so you like know the lingo of the SWO community and you're not just like an outsider reporting on what's happening. I think it's interesting how the different branches do it and how the different perspectives shape, I think, how the public affairs offices run for each branch. I agree. And I think it's kind of it is good that many PAOs have been something else first. We also get a lot of people from industry who come into public affairs, especially on the reserve side, which I really like. Like we'll get reporters and journalists and other type of communication professionals, people that have worked in agencies. And I think they really offer, you know, a really unique perspective as well. We even have politicians who become who go into public affairs. So it's very, very interesting, this career field. And it lends itself to so many different areas of a career. I mean, public affairs people can, depending on what their skills are in PA, 
but they can do so many different things from like this podcast that we're doing right now to video editing or being more of like a strategic advisor, being a consultant. Uh, There's a lot of PR consultant consulting agencies. So it really is an amazing career field in terms of just broadening your skill sets and storytelling. I mean, I love telling stories and this is an amazing opportunity to do what it is that I love doing in or out, you know, in or out of the military. For sure. So you said that you had a great commander and a great first assignment and you told them like from day one, I want to be a public affairs officer. And it sounded like they were like, okay, well, you can start learning about how to do that along with your job. So how long were you in that job before you were able to transfer over to PAO? Uh, Almost two years. So about a year and a half, two years I was there. My commanding officer, he was incredible Admiral Brad Cooper. He's still in the Navy today. And he arranged for me to go to Pack Fleet, which is a higher headquarters command in, in Hawaii. And he arranged for me to go there and work, work in their public affairs office. So that was really key. And then even while I was going to like one of my Navy schools called SWAS, where you kind of learn, it's your SWO school where you learn how to drive the ship and everything. He let me go no cost TAD to Chinfo, Chief of Information. So that was really cool. So I went there for like two or three weeks and I worked at the news desk. So that was while I was at Russell. I did that and then came back, got my SWO pin. And then once I got my SWO pin, they had a lot of junior officers on the ship. So it was partially because of you know timing and manning. They, they were really sitting well with their junior officers. And so as soon as I got my surface warfare officer pin, he allowed me to go TAD, temporary assigned duty, up to Pack Fleet. And so I got to go work at Pack Fleet before I even put in my package for public affairs. And so that was so that I could work under a captain, a Navy captain, and get the experiences of being a PAO without having the designator. And so that really helped set me up for success for when I put my package in. So I, I had a very good, good, uh, good story. And I know not everybody does. I mean, a lot of people's communities discourage them or don't have the manning in their current community to let them go. And I didn't get picked up my first time, but we knew I wasn't going to get picked up. And my boss at the time, that commanding officer said, put this package in, it'll show you're motivated. You will not get selected. They, they just won't let surface warfare officers go in your year group right now. But I'm pretty sure they will the following year. He had been a detailer. He had been a job placement person. So he knew kind of the way the rules work. And so he uh, he encouraged me to put in a package that he knew was not going to go anywhere, which I did. And then I just put in another package uh, the following year. And, and that's where I got selected on my second package. Yeah, it's nice that you had someone who could give you like the back end story so that you weren't like so discouraged to like not try again because he was like, no, put your package in. Probably not going to get selected and you don't have to worry about it because it's not you. It's like the year group and like there's so much stuff going on behind the scenes that it's not just the work that you do, but there's also other things that have to happen to make it so that you can transfer. Yeah. And and I mean, like, I, I really think like a lot of good experiences that I've had and the leaders that I've had, I've just been in the right place at the right time. Now, I've had some really poor work environments as well. And I've had some leaders that I, I definitely think could have done better, or maybe I wasn't in the right place and with myself when I was working for them as well. But certainly, I, I would not be where I am today without those mentors and those leaders who you know, saw potential in me. I mean, because I wasn't probably one of the best woes. I mean, I was never on the bridge 100% by myself. <laughs> there was always like a navigator up there with me or somebody else. Cause I just, I'm not a person that's very 
I don't know, I'm not that great at math and spatial kind of things. And to be a good surface warfare officer, you've got to be able to do time distance calculations like in your head instantly, because you want to ensure that if something's crossing your bow at this speed and at this time, and you're going this way, you're going to have what we call CPA, your closest point of approach at this time. And you've got to really be able to mentally do that geometry very, very quickly. And I've just never been very good on my feet when it comes to those kinds of things. I have to really think about it and I'm kind of slow. And I just didn't have the confidence for it. And I just didn't have the the proclivity to want to do it. And so it, it took a lot for my commanding officer to do that. I mean, he still made the board just as hard. And I was certainly not like passed through the system or anything. But he knew that it would be very good for me to get a swoop pin. And I did all the, I've stood the watches in combat information center. I went even, I even started getting my EL qual engineering officer of the watch, but you know, he definitely put, put me on a path to success. And he not only did this for me, he did it for everybody in our ward room. And I mean, we all talk about it. All of us from, from Russell talk about like how it was just so nice to work for someone that didn't just think, Oh my gosh, you have to be a surface warfare officer. That is it. You know, he understood that there's there's something in the military for everyone if they're willing to put themselves out there and talk to the people in those career fields and then show that they're willing to do the work. I mean, I was volunteering to go to the base PAO office. I was like doing all these commemorative events. I was writing a ton of articles about Russell. I was taking all these pictures. I created a calendar. So I was doing a lot of work too on my end to show that I had the skills to be a public affairs officer. So helpful to have a good leader who cares about what is the best thing for you and doesn't push you on a path that is what they think the best thing is, but they actually listen to you. And then also just as important is that you show that you're dedicated to it and that you want to go above and beyond and get involved. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when you finally became a PAO, what was your first job and what were you doing? So I ended up staying at Pack Fleet. So that was the unit I was at and I got asked to stay. And so I always kind of looked at it like, well, if you get us to stay, it's a pretty good sign that they like you and that, you know, you've got a good office environment and things are going well. And so I stayed and then I got kind of bored because it's a higher headquarters. I was only an O2 at the time. Everybody else was a lot more senior than me. And so I got this opportunity to go on an individual augmentee assignment. We call my A's in the Navy. And it was uh, to the Philippines, Southern Philippines. So they were they had a pretty big uh, anti-terrorism. They had a terrorist group down there called Abu Sayyaf. And they had, I think, ties to Al-Qaeda. And we were down there at a joint special operations task force, helping out the armed forces of the Philippines with their missions. So basically, like we called it by, with, and through, because we weren't doing any of the fighting, but we were advising them, holding classes and working with them. And so I went down there as a public affairs officer. I was only an O2 at the time. And I started working with embassies. The first time I ever worked with an embassy, State Department, and documented the mission as much as I could. It was really hard. Uh, There was not a lot we could say about what we were doing. And there was a lot of controversy about uh, even the U.S. forces being in the Philippines because we had already left. I think it was Cabo, Cebu, I forget. Um, and I know someone's going to correct me on that, but we had, the U.S. military had, had left the Philippines uh, many, many years before. 
And there were a lot of politicians that didn't want us there at the time. And so we had to be a little quiet about what we were doing, but locally they liked it and the reporters wanted to do more. So it was, it was, it was my first taste of this like push pull with public affairs where, you know, you're sent to do a job and you want to do it, but then there's all these other forces around you who sometimes want you to talk and then sometimes don't want you to talk, depending on the political sensitivities. So that was my first exposure to that. I mean, now I'm like living in that world every day and it's just no big deal. But, you know, as a very junior officer, I was like, why can't we talk about our troops training the Philippine forces? But it was it was considered to be very sensitive uh, what we were doing and why we were there. Yeah, that's really interesting and such an interesting experience to have as a young officer and to see all the dynamics going on behind the scenes, because I think sometimes it's really hard to see like what the political nature or what things are driving. I think that was like one of the hardest parts of being in the military for me was like we had to do things and we didn't have all the information of like why something had to be done the way that it was done, but we just had to follow orders. And that's kind of interesting that you could see that dynamic happening as you were trying to meet your mission. Yeah, it was it was it was hard because yeah, I remember the the embassy uh, PAO. She was very very controlling, and I, that was my first taste of like how controlling it could be. Like very benign, innocuous stories. But then something would happen. Like we had this horrible when I first got there uh, flooding, and they needed the help of the NSW guys, Navy, Navy Special Warfare, or some of the other guys. The embassy really wanted a lot of coverage of that because it was humanitarian assistance and it was helping the local community. And so that was really, really, really pushed. But when it came down to like holding classes with the AFP or some of the day-to-day stuff that we were doing, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in publicizing it. I remember we had a blog. We had one of these like old WordPress blogs and just getting a story approved on that darn blog was just like pulling teeth. I mean, and, and you got to think too, they got a million other priorities besides what we're doing down in, uh, we were in Zambuanga and that's like way South and they're up in Manila. And so, you know, they're dealing with so much other stuff, port visits or, or other kinds of things, things that are much more high level than, you know, this little group of 500, you know, special operators down in the Southern Philippines. And so it was, it was very interesting. Uh, My boss was up in Manila with them doing like day-to-day coordination, which was nice. So he could kind of be the face of everything. And then I was down in the Southern Philippines, me and like a couple uh, enlisted content creators. So like people that can take imagery and videos, but it was such a cool mission. It was the first time I'd ever worked with special forces. And I got to go around to all the outstations and get to know the special uh, forces operators and how they see the world. And I would spend like a whole weekend just going there and covering their events. And it was just a great experience <laughs> altogether. It was sometimes very frustrating, but a good experience. I could see how it'd be exciting, challenging, frustrating, like all the emotions put together. So is there anything from your career between that time and now that like was a big shift point or something that you really think that we should talk about? I think that based on your audience, I I think that a lot of times in the military, we think that I would say that From that point, it was more, there wasn't anything major in the career 
field. It was more in the mental health field. I had some issues um, with mental health that kept coming back because I hadn't really handled a couple things. So in 2014, I got a DUI. Um, I was a lieutenant at the time, almost a lieutenant commander. And then with my major first major leadership position, I was a carrier public affairs officer. And I had a night at a reception where I got blacked out drunk. And those two incidences, I think, were really instrumental in changing the course of my uh, approach uh, towards people, towards social situations, the ways in which I, I interact with people, especially in groups. And I would say that that's where I did the most growth and development, not so much in the, in the career. The career was just moving along just fine, I think, because I had found my niche. But the mental health stuff, I had to really take a, take a deep turn on. And do you feel like you just got overwhelmed and, or was there like a triggering life event that brought the mental health stuff back? It was the fact that I didn't have really close relationships at certain jobs. And so I didn't feel like I had a big, like a good support system. And so I would get to certain positions and I would just be so lonely and I really didn't have anyone. And I didn't have a husband like I have now who's just so supportive and wonderful and, and just really there for me. And so I, I just felt kind of alone and lost. And a lot of that was, like I say, self-induced. I, I tend to even now be somewhat of a, of a hermit. And I, I, I do prefer my, my, comp my own company I, sometimes. So I know that some of it's, self, like I said, there's definitely responsibility on my end on that as well. But yeah, I, I think that it was a combination of a lot of things that were happening and then things that I just hadn't dealt with and hadn't really examined within myself that got me to that point. Yeah. And I think it's sometimes it's really hard to be a woman in the military. I was married the whole time that I was in. But when I was deployed, I was really lucky because I deployed with another woman. And so we had like a friendship. But I've interviewed enough people to hear about how isolating it can be to be the only woman officer or the only woman in a unit and how hard it is to just connect with people. And I'm an introvert, so I probably would have been someone who would have been off by myself and not as involved in the group. And had I not had my husband, I could see how that would be possible just from all the stories that I've heard and what it's like. It's bad, especially because you don't have anyone to talk to. I mean, like everybody else has like their, their spouse or the significant other that they can talk to. And you're just like, oh, I really have nobody. One of the women that I interviewed, she was deployed and she felt like she always had to be on because there was no other woman for her to talk to and to connect with. And like when she was around the guys, she had to like be protective of like the other officer guys. She had to be protected of like knowing that she's a woman around a bunch of guys. And then when she was around her enlisted troop, she had to be an officer. And so she felt like she was always had to be on. And it was a really hard challenge because she could never like let go and just be herself while she was deployed. That's why it's so important that we have more women who join the military and who, who enlist and who stick around because we don't want to be like the one, like you, you choose from like, especially the more senior you get, it's like, oh, I can hang out with these three people. And guess what? If, you know, just like everybody else in life, you don't click with everybody. And so you have such a small group of people that you can possibly click with. And to, to be honest, the liberty policies for introverts, is just fighting because you have to hang out with someone in order to go out. You cannot go out into a foreign country by yourself, which really is hard for people like me because I enjoy 
going out by myself. If I don't have a close friend or if I don't have somebody that I feel like I can talk to, I'm totally fine going out alone. But in a, in a foreign port, you're not allowed to do that in the Navy. It's so interesting to talk about. And when did you end up meeting your husband? And like, how has that changed your life? You talked about how supportive and I see you smiling. I like, I love that you just like lit up and started smiling. Yeah. Well, he's just so healthy and normal and and doesn't have any kind of, I mean, he has problems. He's not perfect, but he's not, gosh, he just doesn't have like the the stuff that I've seen in other people and most of the kinds of people that I was drawn to. I was always sort of drawn to people who were kind of where I was and, and had a lot of issues and problems and things they were working on like I was. And when I met my husband, it was just like, whoa, this is like a normal, nice guy who's strong and funny and, and good looking. And, and it was just completely a different ball game that I was in. And but by that point, you know, I'd worked on myself enough to have some boundaries and to, you know, be be pretty content with where I was, although I was incredibly lonely. I mean, I was still crying every night and being lonely. And like, there's this thing that people say, oh, you got to be super happy in order to find someone. Well, no, I don't really know if I agree with that because I definitely was not happy. I was okay with my life and I was moving forward. But I was incredibly lonely. I just moved to Washington State. I was taking over this leadership job that I really didn't know what I was doing. And he came along. And at first, I kind of gave him the friend card because he's 10 years younger. And I just wasn't... He just didn't seem like my type. I wasn't really understanding of the kind of person he is because he's such his own person. He was hard to understand. Like... I just couldn't get him at first. And I just was like, oh, this this is a nice kid that seems like hanging out with me. Okay, I'll have him come over and fix my RV a few times and we'll go out to dinner and, you know, this will be a nice little friendship. That's all I kind of thought it was going to be. And then I just saw so much in him in terms of just his heart and the kind of character he has. And I saw how honest he was, <laughs> you know, and funny. And, and I just knew, like, I was like, whoa, this is... This is this is different. This is not going to be like just anything else that I've ever experienced. And so that's what happened. And it worked out. I like hearing that story. That's really nice. You're in Germany right now. I know that. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing and what the role you guys are playing in Germany is. So I am in Stuttgart, Germany, and I'm at a command called European Command. And I'm part of a team of people who came over here to assist not only their public affairs shop, but some of their other shops on their staff. And we are helping, I can't say too much about it, but we're basically helping with some of the issues that are arising due to Russia's attack on Ukraine. There's so much to this issue. I, and like I said, I really can't get into any real detail about it, but it's an invaluable experience. I've never worked on an issue like this before. I've never seen firsthand what it's like at this level of operations to be involved in something like this. So it's it's a real honor to be here. There's an amazing public affairs team. It's very robust compared to anything I've ever seen before. I've never seen this many people on a public affairs staff in so many different directorates and departments. And the PAO in 06, he's just incredible. He's a great leader. And I'm having this amazing... I mean, I keep extending. I'm going, I'm going to have probably one more extension before I leave. And so, and that's because I like the team and, and I'm in a good place and happy to help 
and serve in any way that I can here. It's it's been a very very interesting experience. It's a, it's a problem that is definitely not easy to work through and the the communication between us and higher headquarters which is in this case a DOD Department of Defense and then all the way down to the components and then how what they're doing and the political sensitivities and everything else that goes into an issue like this um, has been really fascinating. Yeah, it's been fun to watch your updates on LinkedIn and to see a little piece of what you're doing. And I was going to ask you, when are you coming home? But it sounds like you're like, I'll stay here longer. Yeah, so I've already extended one time and then there might be another opportunity to extend again. And and if it happens, um, I've already said that I'd be interested in doing it. And it's still going to put me in in a good place to come back and have enough time to transfer and and my command back in Norfolk. They're very supportive of, of me coming out here and giving me this opportunity. And I had just had shoulder surgery before I came. And so we were not sure that I was even going to be able to get another mission before I transferred. So I'm incredibly grateful not only to be in such a good team, but to have access to medical care here. And so I've been able to do physical therapy while I've been out here. And that's been great. And uh, yeah, I'm in a good place. So there was there was no reason to, to leave just yet. And so that's that's what I did. And so and I'm grateful too that every now and again, I can do some of these podcasts, because uh, I really miss it. And this is something I love to do, just like you do. Yeah, I was gonna ask about the shoulder surgery, because I knew about that. And I remembered, I think we talked offline, and you were saying about how like you had to work the behind the scenes to make it all happen. But it is really cool that you were able to go on the mission while you were still recovering and able to get therapy, physical therapy while you're there and continue to heal and recover and do the mission, which is really neat. Yeah. And that doesn't happen all the time. I mean, there could have been a lot of other opportunities that my parent command sends people on that would not have given me the opportunity. But it just so happens this mission is at a headquarters command in Stugart. And the medical has been amazing. Like I'm getting in to see people. I even got my teeth cleaned out here. It's been, I had no idea how easy it was to transfer your TRICARE from one duty station to another, even when you're temporarily assigned someplace. So Hats off to TRICARE for that. All I did was go into this office. I got, I just filled out a little bit of paperwork. And next thing I know, I can make my appointments and, and do everything that I need to do. And, and in fact, the wait times here are a lot less than in Norfolk because Norfolk's such a big fleet concentration area. So it's been nice to do some of the appointments here instead of doing them uh, back, in, back at home. So no, that, that worked out really well. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's awesome that TRICARE has the systems in place so that you can do that. It- Every time we've moved, we've never had an issue with like getting our medical stuff set up. And it is pretty seamless because you think about moving all over the world and TRICARE has it figured out. Is there anything else from your time in the military that you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on before I asked my last question? I'm trying to think. I don't think so because we really covered on so much. I, I would just say that be open to the experience of the military no matter what and there are going to be ups and downs. Like there, there's certainly some some experiences that I that were very painful. But when I look back, I, I realize they happened and they were there for a reason. And then now I'm better. And there's things that I do differently. And I think I'm of a, a better I'm a better leader and a better producer uh, because of those things. So I'm 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 very thankful for the opportunities that I've been given. It, it sounds like you have such an interesting career and so many different experiences, and we did cover a lot. So my last question is, what advice would you give to a young woman who is considering military service? I would say to talk to people who are currently serving. 
that was something I wish I had done. Gosh, what, what an opportunity it would have been if I had found some women who were already in the military, maybe a little senior in rank, like a E6, E5, something like that, and got their sense of like what the military was like. Or I also think that you need to know all the different career fields in the military. I didn't even know like everything you could do. So that would be my advice. The other one would be is to have an open mind, be receptive to getting help when you need it. There are so many therapeutic resources uh, for you. There's church and faith resources. There's just so many benefits to joining the military. And I do not believe we even scratched the surface of helping to educate the American public about what it is that you really can get from joining the military. I mean, you're willing to put in the work, you're willing to show your value, they will pay it back tenfold. I agree. Maybe that's why I wrote a book about joining the military. And it's funny that you mentioned career fields because I wrote a whole chapter about career fields because I felt like I thought Air Force, they fly planes. But there's so much more to the military than like what the surface level is. Like you can't just think, Air Force, planes, Navy, ships, Army soldiers. There's so much opportunity and different career fields and so many things that you can do that I spent a lot of time learning about all you could do in the military so that you you can have a quick overview by reading the book. So I think that's great advice. And I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. Me too, Amanda. It's always great talking to you. for listening to this week's episode if this is your first time listening to women of the military podcast i encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast there are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in joining serving leaving the military or just learning about the women who have served in the military If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.